Welcome to Glam City. On Glam City, we speak to the hardworking people working in Australia's galleries, libraries, archives and museums. I'm Chelsea Barnett and today we are doing things a little bit differently. We're turning the tables because one of our own is in the hot seat. We are chatting to Dr Kira Lindsay and she's usually the other host, the co-host of Glam City. But today, she's the subject who I'm going to be chatting to and questioning. Kira is an Australian Research Council DECRA Fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney, and she's the author of the 2016 book, The Convict's Daughter, which, if I'm correct, is in its sixth print run. Yeah, I think so. Maybe six or seventh by now. Yeah. As somebody else who has a book that is not in its sixth or seventh print run. That is quite amazing. Hello, Kira. Hi, Chelsea. Hi. So today we're going to chat about a bit of a gem, something that you found in the archive and about which you've recently written a piece in the conversation. So we're going to be talking about these ladies' petitions from 1850. And so a little bit of context in order to stop the recommencement of transportation, which mm-hmm. was the sending of convicts from Britain to the colony, to New South Wales. There were a whole bunch of rallies and protests and petitions. Right. So 1840... Um, transportation stops in New South Wales, but not elsewhere, of course, not in Western Australia and and not yet in Tasmania. And the colony really sees it as this great opportunity to start to grab the reins and the purse strings of self-government, you know, so it will be able to run the economy and decide the future of not just New South Wales, but, you know, we know that Parks thought that New South Wales was really, Henry Parks was really how you, the engine room for the whole of Australia. So there there was that kind of local but also a national vision. So within a decade, they, um, colonists in New South Wales had made amazing progress and they really felt in 1848 that they were just on the brink of all these of greater self-government. And at that moment, the colonial secretary, who was in charge of all the dominions in the British Empire, basically all the territories, basically said, I think it's time to resume transportation to New South Wales. Well, that went down, to quote Barry Humphreys, like a cup of cold sick <laughs> in, uh, in, in New South Wales. People didn't like the idea because they felt that they had finally purged the convict state, even though there were still convicts serving their sentences throughout the colony. But they felt that they had acquired a level of respect Respectability that would make them fit for government. And so when Earl Grey actually sent a ship called the Hashmi, he sent it to Sydney. And when it got here in the winter of 1849, and I've written about this in The Convict's Daughter, in fact, it's the backdrop against the witch mice. Um, that story plays out. Thousands of colonists rushed down to Circular Quay and stopped the boat. So it was um, it was not able to dock in Sydney. And so colonists felt victorious. They yeah. felt that they had had their statement and sent a firm message to the um, colonial secretary that there would be no convicts here. But what happened was that Governor Fitzroy, who was a bit of a lad, rather slippery and um, very old school, he basically downplayed the significance of this moment of public protest and wrote back to the colonial secretary saying, ah, oh, it was just a few rabble-rousers that no one takes seriously. Forget about it. And um, and so the colonial secretary was forgetting about it and he was just about to send another boat. And when colonists in New South Wales heard that Governor Fitzroy had basically done the dirty on them, they were absolutely livid. And it's that 
that stirred up this ferment. Now, there had been fermentation about this issue for over a decade, particularly from 1846 onwards, but it had been growing, you know, festering. People thought it was resolved. And really, they thought that that Hashimi episode down at Circular Key had done the job. And so they were now sleeves rolled up and ready, ready to, to go. And that is why what you had at this moment was not just your old radical rabble rousers with, you know, the vision of democracy in their eyes, but you had people who were invested in this for different reasons, people from the upper um, classes as well as previous convicts as well. All of them just felt like the colonial secretary didn't have a right to disregard their desires. And if he was going to do that, he was um, disrespecting local authority, but also the whole tenet of what British governing systems were being. So they wanted the colonial secretary to be sacked for this and they wanted to have a say in how the colony would be run in the future. So there's a lot at stake here. Yeah, you know, yeah. you can kind of see it as one of the early moments of um, an expression of independence. You know, back off and let us make our own decisions about what we think is right for ourselves. And so this is where the petition comes to light, That's I suppose. Right. Yep. And part of what is so remarkable about the petition, which you've got copies sitting in front of us, mm-hmm. um, and it's wonderful to see that kind of gorgeous old handwriting and see the lists, of, I suppose, the list of different communities that mm. were signing on to this. What's so remarkable about this is that part of the people who were signing onto that were women. Right. And not just women, Chelsea, but as you know, as I say in the conversation piece, what I did when I crunched these um, the figures, so 9,189 women in Sydney alone signed that petition. There were two petitions, so those signatures across those, but they were all consolidated into one document when they were tabled in Legislative Council and then sent off to the House of Commons in England. To go to the Queen, yes, which was their ultimate, because the petition was actually addressed not to the parliamentarians, but to Queen Victoria. And I love that. I love the fact that you've got these colonial women talking to their Queen. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. it's fantastic. So, yeah, so petitions were also circulated from the Conservatives who wanted to maintain transportation. They got um, under 600 signatures, whereas Parks, Henry Parks and his team collected well over 32,000 signatures. Now, of those signatures, we have nine the 9,000 or so from Sydney women. And what that tells you, I think, if you start to think about those figures, is that within Sydney alone, there was a very active female public Um, because they were a considerable number of those um, total signatures. They're about a third, just a little less than a third. And for, uh, I think you say, 42% of Sydney's female population, Mm -hmm. which is, again, not, not a small kind of chunk of things it's it's quite a sizable portion right. of the of the women living in Sydney at the time that's it and i was just so excited because you know i've been been brung up proper as we might say as a 19th century historian and we read all these things which i think have been challenged over the last decade or so about this idea of the separation of the spheres you know the idea that this kind of doctrine um, became very popular was um, articulated by people like john ruskin in fact who i'm writing about in my current book, she said, plugging it, (laughs) Um, and about this idea that men should be in the um, hostile, adversarial public sphere and women could be the um, goddesses of the hearth in the domestic sphere. Now, I think that there's a lot of elements of truths of that broad idea, but what we see here is something that completely 
shows us that these women were not entirely confined to the, that sphere. In fact, that that's the language that one of the people who present the petition says. The women are entitled to step out of their sphere, wow. into this sphere, for something that matters. And in fact, not only are they entitled, it's their right to do it. And I love this language, you know. Can you imagine how exciting that is? So if we know that they weren't confined to that sphere, we also know that we now, I think, have to say, well, they weren't confined, but also they weren't entirely excluded from their political processes. In fact, in this particular instance, people like Henry Parks and all the people who were working with him worked with the women to invite them into the political sphere and to get this petition signed. It was them using their campaign techniques to get these signatures. That's really interesting because you say in the conversation piece that the the press snidely described, it's a great phrase, snidely described the petitions as lady petitions mm. and yet you've got Parks kind of legitimating, I suppose, or, or confirming the legitimacy of of this the, the women's activism by inviting them in. Um, does that speak to, I suppose, a kind of disconnect between how women more broadly were imagined or expected to act uh, in, in colonial New South Wales and actually what they were able to do, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think, I think it's a great question. And I think it's a reminder that um, issues of gender are never going to be cartoonesque. You know, there's always going to be a lot of complexity in that story. I mean, I hasten to add, I don't think that we should be turning Henry Parks into a pinup boy for, you know, colonial feminism um, <laughs> because he really wasn't. And, you know, it was clearly to his political advantage to do this. But what they did do, and this is what I discovered when I, looked at the document itself you know I went through every single page on the back of each page there's the name of the signature collector and they used the same techniques as they used for the male petitions they created this beautiful document um, I think with the um, very strong input from women in the actual address and then they got their typical campaigners to go around and knock on the doors and get these signatures now I know that because not always but in quite a few instances you see the addresses of where these women live and this I think is incredibly exciting for potential future research you know we could do some great I'd love to get a PhD on board and supervise that to do a project that cross-referenced this with social history cultural history political history convict files literary records things about literacy and really for the first time bring these women out of the shadows of um, Sydney's social history. It also, um, I suppose, speaks to the complexity of not only political activism in in colonial New South Wales, but women's political kind mm. of activism and engagement. Can you speak a little bit more about that? You know, the kind of arch villain of that piece that I wrote in the conversation is William Charles Wentworth, who had started off his life, um, his political career rather, as a radical for the native-born, you know, pushing the rights of first-generation European-borns Australians and making the case for the fact that those people had a kind of distinctive birthright in, in the colony, but at least a right to have their voice and their opinions not disregarded by the sterling set. But by the time we see him, this old shambolic corduroy-wearing man who tried to buy, who bought New Zealand at one stage, I mean, he is one of the most wealthy people in in Australia and he's a squatter he's a squatter par excellence he's the man that you want to think about and he's become about as conservative as it can be 
he has, um, you know, his wife, um, who's been subject to a difficult time within colonial society himself, herself, and many, many daughters. But Wentworth says in this, when the petitions, these ladies' petitions are... Sorry, when I use the word ladies' petitions, I put it in those quotation marks as well because I think it is a pretty disparaging term. So what the correct title is, Petitions from the Female Inhabitants of Sydney. But that's Mm -hmm. a bit of a mouthful. (laughs) So we'll say the petition from the women. Anyway, he says, oh, well, you know, if you're going to let petitions like this in, which I don't think we should, but if you're going to let petitions like this in, watch out because, you know, before you know what's happening, there'll be great big loads of petitions on the Legislative Council table and they will be agitating for women's rights. So this was like the gateway petition. He saw it. Yeah, he said this is the beginning of a great big flood. And he said, watch out, husbands, if you're letting your wives sign this document then you're not going to get your shirts ironed, you're not going to get your meals cooked. I mean, it was about as disgusting. It's real fingers-in-the-mouth stuff from Wentworth. And that's when um, John Lamb says, actually, these women have an absolute right, not even a right, but a duty to step out of their sphere and into this world to make these statements. So, you know, when we look at the question of gender, you've got three men giving us an insight into this. We've got Park saying, I want to use these women for my political advantage because the cause matters. Mm -hmm. You've got Lamb saying, these women have a right and duty. And then you've got Wentworth saying, look out, the spirit of Mary Wollstonecraft is stirring in Sydney before we know it. You know, they'll be telling us, telling women that they shouldn't be looking after their husbands. Heaven forbid, should that happen? Heaven (laughs) forbid. I think um, Wentworth would be looking down on us right now, women in the room chatting, um, with a smile on his face, surely. (laughs) Um, Just to kind of, I suppose, step it out a little bit, you you work on uh, what you call speculative biography and your current DECRA project is the speculative biography of Adelaide Ironside. Can you tell me just, you know, a little bit more about Adelaide herself? Mm. Well, and Adelaide is the person that we should thank for finding this petition as well. So I'm very glad that we've brought her into the room with us today, Chelsea. So Adelaide Eliza Scott... Ironside. It's a name. Mm-hmm. And she introduced the name Scott when she was 13 or 14. She was, I guess you'd have to say she was a bit of a child prodigy in some ways. At least that's how she was described. Her grandmother had been uh, a convict who was transported for forgery in 1812 and her fa- grandfather. Now, this is a bit contentious. There's a difference of opinion about this, but my biography will, I think, um, make compelling the argument that her grandfather was John Redman, who was a Marine with Watkin Tench, who came out on the Charlotte within the First Fleet, uh-huh. got involved in all sorts of mischief and ended up being the chief um, watch keeper of of Sydney and then the chief jailer of, at George Street. So they were there from the very inception. Some people have described them as colonial royalty, but they weren't. Uh, so Adelaide, her mother left her father short when she was about three because of his drinking. And so she was brought up by a single mother who was quite ambitious. Now, forgery at this time was a crime of the upper classes and the educated. So although Mary Redmond, her grandmother, is a shadowy figure, I think we can recognise that there must have been a tradition of um, educating Mm. accomplished women. And that's what Adelaide became. She could speak three or four languages. She um, wrote a lot of poetry, which was published in newspapers. And she 
um, she did this incredible collection of 43 Australian wildflowers that were exhibited in France to great acclaim and that set her off to become the first Australian-born artist of either gender to travel overseas, which she did by leaving the colony in 1855. And over the next 11 years, she spent most of that time in Rome training with all these elites, meeting these incredible people. Rome at that time was a place where um, there were jolly female bachelors living a life of sexual and creative freedom. And she was friends with those people and she also trained with Ruskin. So hers is an incredible story that reminds us that colonial society, you know, colonial stories never lived only within national boundaries. And why... Why is it that that we have Adelaide to thank Uh for this petition? How do they kind of exist in the same world? Great question. Well, anyone who's a colonial historian has probably read Peter Cochran's Colonial Ambition. Great book, quite a few times. And Peter's an awesome guy. Um, Yeah, so I was reading that for about the third or fourth time. I was reading the chapter on the Hyde Park barrack um, parade or protest that's associated with this petition because it was 1850 and the star speaker was a cantankerous, controversial, dubious and dodgy figure, um, the Presbyterian minister John Dunmore Lang. He was a feisty character, but he had a kind of adopted Adelaide as his protege. They remained very close all their lives. And I thought, well, if Lang is there, I wonder if Adelaide was there, because she was very politically passionate. She was an outspoken Republican about Australia being a republic and also Italy. And uh, and I thought, you know, if, if she was there in 1850, she would have been about 20. And that would have been one of those crucible moments in her life, I reckon, where you really get your political awareness shaped. And I wanted to see if I could prove that she was there. So when I read... Um, Peter's colonial ambition again, suddenly this reference to a lady's petition, which was just a sentence in the description of that, just came to life to me and I thought, well, I wonder if that still exists. Yeah, yeah. And could Adelaide have signed it? Could she have been a ringleader? You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. And on this episode, we're talking to Glam City's own Kira Lindsay, usually a co-host, today in the hot seat. And we're talking about this quite fascinating ladies petition to use the to use the disparaging term but also to use the shorter term um and we kind of left it there with potentially a potential star signatory adelaide ironside and so kira was she there okay well to answer that question i want to go back in a slightly different direction (laughs) again sorry Charles. i'm one of those people who answer a question by taking the bull by the horns but um (laughs) so My um, historical passion lies in recovering female voices from the archive. I'm really, really passionate about that. And that's what The Convict's Daughter was about. It was, I found a deposition that told the story of my great, great, great aunt who had run away with the Attorney General's son around this sort of time. So pretty cool story. And, but there was only a few sentences about her. So when... um, 
Yeah, when I, I started thinking about this petition, I thought, wow, it could potentially tell a story about a whole lot of other women as well, if it existed. So I went and spoke to three archivists um, at the State Records of New South Wales. That was... Um, uh, Bonnie Wild, who's a um, fantastic archivist, um, Edith Ho from the State Library of New South Wales, and also Rosemary Semple, who's at the Parliamentary Records of New South Wales Parliamentary Archives. And we thought, we all recognised that this could be really exciting and um, thought, let's start casting our web and seeing what we can find. Fortunately, there's this thing called the Australian Joint Copying Project, which has been around for quite a long time, and they have been digitising documents en masse in, in a lot of different areas. And they had digitised, um, the, what they often do is just digitise the first couple of pages of these things. But, um, and in fact, the opening address of the petition was already online. Wow. But no one had really sort of just, you know, I think it's that thing about history that is what excites us so much when we're doing archival research is that often there's just this glorious moment of serendipity where the right project in question comes together and suddenly all those dots that have been floating around in a different universe start to reassemble and um, get connected in a different way. And that's what happened here. So we were I was given some very discouraging responses from um, archivists in England who basically said, eh, nah, you got Buckley's mate. I mean, they didn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> but they basically said most petitions from this time have been destroyed. Um, you're probably not going to find it and there's nothing here. But here it was under our nose all along. It was in the stacks, in the dusty backs of the stacks of the Parliamentary um, Archives of New South Wales in a big blue box with a little number LC1 label on it. Wow. And Rosemary found it after um, after I'd been looking for about eight weeks and I'd just given up. You know, I'd had so many discouraging emails that I was like, okay, well, I'll work with what I've got and see what I can do. And... Um, she rang me up and she said, I found it. And I was like, no, nah, come on, you're joking. And she's like, so no, no. I'm like, hang on, I'm going to send a sit down. So wow. uh, I was in the next day to have a look at it. I think what's remarkable about that, um, not only the kind of recount that you've given there, but also what really came through in the conversation piece is your explicit acknowledgement of the work that archivists mm. do. Mm. It was really lovely to read in that piece that the 207-page document was found by Rosemary. Mm. Rosemary did that work. Mm. I loved that you named her. I loved that you honoured her contribution in that way. And I and I imagine and I've, you know, read work in the past that, that simply says stuff like, you know, an archivist found these mm. or indeed I found these and completely amidst the role of the archivist altogether. Why was it so important to you to name Rosemary and indeed to name the other archivists mm, you've just thank, mentioned? Thanks, Chelsea, because the female voices that I'm interested in listening to are not only in the archives themselves, but they're of the archives, mm. right? And um, Marianne Diva has, I think, quite recently written some really important stuff about... So we have this idea, more generally, um, of there being a violence in the archives, that archives tend to record the past of those who had the education, the influence or the economics 
to be able to have their pasts recorded. But um, Marianne Diva takes that further, uh, basically saying, well, the violence is not only in the archives, it's also around the archives. And that so often we have women working in archives and their stories are not told or acknowledged as well. Well, obviously, I don't want to perpetuate, perpetuate that kind that of violence. violence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they did a great job, you know, and all of them understood. The moment I kind of said, oh, this could be, you know, they were like, right, let's get on to this. And it was fun. And sometimes we do have that vision of the historian as the lone detective, you know, slogging it out with the archives. And there have been many of those moments in my life as well. But very often we have the joy of it being collaborative. Collaborative project, And then we yeah. get to discover it together and share the joys of it and ask different questions, bring different questions to it. So you also write, I'm drawing a lot on the conversation piece, um, not only because it's publicly accessible so people listening to this can go and read it, but also because you, you spell out so beautifully, I think, the, not only why the petition is important, why this document is important, but the process around this kind of archival research. And you write that this collection of, of papers promised a rare encounter with voices difficult to hear within the colonial archive. It's a lovely sentence. And I wondered what that says or what that indicates about your your process of engaging with archives more generally. And what is it about uncovering or, or giving a space for the voices to speak mm. that, that excites you all? motivates you was it you know the day I went into the parliamentary archives to open the blue box that Rosemary had unearthed and sitting in uh, her office cubicle because they don't really have any formal place for that kind of work and I opened the big document and turned the first page you know got the address and was able to look at that uh, a little bit differently and those there are 15 signatures on that first page and most of them are from, um, well, the first one smack bang in the middle is Lady Eleanor Stevenson. And, and that kind of tells you, I think, that she's played a pretty key role in it. And I suspect her handwriting might be that of the address. But when you go through the remaining 207 pages, 206 pages, they're um, lined in columns of three. So there's three sections. And what you see is this fascinating collection of different female voices Um which, you know, when you marry it together with the census records, which I started to look at quite closely, you can see you can see where women are living, how they're living side by side. So you often get a moment where a whole lot of family names have been written down in quite a good hand. And then a little bit afterwards, you get these wobbly un, um, hands that lack confidence. And it looks like... The blokes, the collectors knocked on the door and the women have come out to sign the document and then they've said, get the servants forward and let's get them to sign as well. Now that moment in itself tells you something about how gender and class are operating in this political moment. It's just a moment, you know, we can only speculate about it because... I can't prove that. But when you've got a street address there as well, that gives us a little bit more information to start to look at it. Also, another thing that um, might help us start to think about the urban geography of Sydney, because these are Sydney signatures, is that you've often got names like Florence's and Edith's and Agnes's and Harriet's, which we would associate with a kind of perhaps an Anglican establishment culture, next to wobbly Anne's who have signed their names um, without confidence, or even those names that have been signed with a cross, in which case what's happened is that the signature collector has written their name and these women who are illiterate have signed with a cross. And most often those kind of women were had been convicts themselves. So this, again, tells us that this was not an issue that excluded emancipist convict women. It was one that could involve them too. How do you use a document like this? Mm. You've spoken quite eloquently about 
the the voices or the people that are behind those wobbly signatures, behind those kind of unsure X's of the illiterate. What then do you do as a historian to kind of put this document to work, so to speak? I think it's a it's a great question, Chelsea, and it's one that I don't have all the answers for. I've got some um, starting thoughts about it. You know, when um, when I first got this document, I thought I'll sit down and write a journal article about it, and um, and I did quite a lot of work on situating petition culture, you know, because this is the golden age of the petition at this exact moment as well, um, more in in England specifically. And as I kept going, I thought, you know what, I really just want to get this out into the public sphere to invite that conversation more generally with, um, with my colleagues and friends and collaborators to see where we could go with this. But I was taken by um, a quote that Claire Wright um, put in one of her articles, um, and it's a quote from one of the great um, contributors of women's history in Australia, Marilyn Lake, where she says that basically we need to know so much more about the political thought of women and that we need to kind of drill down, I'm paraphrasing her here, but we need to drill down more into the complexities, the kind of the rub, the frisson, if you like, between public and private sphere for women in order to understand their political thought. And my instinct is that this document, which predates the women who were involved in the Eureka stockade by 1854, does that. And one of the ways that it does that is that it suggests that women were not only politically engaged about things that we might consider radical issues, um, but they could come together en masse, 42% of the population, about something about which there was broad agreement. And um, in that conversation article, I noticed that in the, I not make the note that in the penultimate sentence of the address, they've crossed out the word particularly and replace it with the word patriotically. Now, we know that the word patriotic has a it's lot of... It's quite an of, intervention. It's quite, yeah, but, and it's quite a... Um, the word patriot, patriot, you know, it's got all these... We have anxieties around that word in the 21st century. Okay, acknowledged. But at that particular moment, for colonial women to be specifically choosing the word patriot, it has different resonances. And what I think that we're seeing is that women are seeing themselves as very much involved in the future of their colony and their country. And they're prepared to step out of their sphere to get involved because they feel that the colonial secretary, in a sense, has compelled them to say, we have to take the reins of our country and say no to this thing and decide our own future. And that's why they crossed out and put the word patriot in there. It's quite remarkable. Um, So you were just talking then about a whole bunch of things. Uh, But one of the things that has kind of sitting in my mind is your desire to get get this work, get this petition, get this document out to a public audience, not just writing a journal article, but writing something in the conversation that would invite readers, would invite conversation. Um, and I think that's, you know, not only quite important, but also speaks, I think, to, to stuff that you're quite interested in more generally. You have been a historical consultant and on-camera historian for the show Lawless, The Real Bush Rangers. I have to read that. Um, <laughs> on the History Channel. And you were a regular presenter on Nightlife on ABC Radio National. Um, so, you know, f- f- from that, I might be able to infer that public communication is quite important to you. 
and I wonder if you, you know, if, if public communication through these kinds of media forms, through, you know, public writing, through television, through radio, enables more of an insight into the work that not only historians do, but that archivists do. Hmm. Well, I think I'd start by saying that I think that as researchers working in a university, we I see myself as a as a public servant who's kind of funded by the government, you know, in one way or another. And therefore I am a servant of the public. Mm. And I am also part of the public. I um I have this fantastic grandfather who used to say to me, we used to go for these great walks along the railway line at the back of our house. And um I remember one time him saying to me, You know, Carol, we're all born between the feces and the urine. <laughs> And, uh, you know, he was a doctor, old medical doctor, so he kind of uh, saw things in those kind of prosaic ways. But to me, that he was saying, we're all the same mm. and we're all, you know, we are the public. And um, so I don't see the ivory tower thing going on. I just see communicating and sharing ideas and also getting ideas. You know, I think history and archiving is a collaborative act. You know, with archives in particular, we often face, because they're threatened by funding challenges, a use-it-or-lose-it system. And yet we together, as the people of this moment, have a great responsibility to be the custodians of our collective past and to share that with other people and to excite in them Mm -hmm. an enthusiasm for the responsibility of becoming custodians as well. That's our job. And so... I feel that in my work, what I want to do is light a fire, not fill a bucket. And to do that so that people around me feel that sense of shared custodianship about our past. It's a past that we're always creating and recreating. It's not a static thing. And and just because there are documents that look static doesn't mean the past is. But as we've seen today, even that... You know, the past can rupture open with a new discovery all the time. And that's what's so wonderful about being a historian is it's never done. It's always organic. I think it's always collaborative. And we need to be in a very rich, dynamic, even sometimes volatile conversation in order for that to um, have the life and the organic energy that it deserves when I was reading that piece in the conversation and came across Rosemary's name, my heart did a little bit of a flutter and I thought, what a beautiful kind of moment um, to, to, to have the hard work recognised in such a way mm. um, is so important. And I, I, you know, I'm sure Rosemary was thrilled as well um, when she read it. To kind of bring our conversation to a close, it does occur to me, Dr Kira Lindsay, <laughs> That a question that I asked a little while ago has been left begging. Mm. And so I will come back to the petition to Adelaide. Was she there? Did she sign it? You also asked me a question about speculative biography and the archives. And so I'll bring those together if, if that's okay. Please do. So to me, speculative biography is an invitation to write history that tastes like fiction. You know, so it's hopefully a good read and a, 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 a Exciting read. Um, And 
it also invites a higher degree of speculation than sometimes we're allowed to make. It uses narrative more than argument. Peter Cochran uses this terrific term in another piece he's written about something else, which he says that sometimes when we're writing narrative history, we can convey argument in narrative as if by stealth. Wow. I love that. Because I think that's what we can do. We don't have to be didactic and shove information down the throats of our readers, but we can give them things and invite them to think about whether or not this speculation holds true, but also help them to imagine being there. And that's why I write speculative biography, because I enjoy being imaginative myself and it helps me license that in myself and and the readers. So... Um, the good news is that the petition will appear in my forthcoming book because yes, Adelaide ah. and her Martha and her mother ding, ding, Martha, ding. they did sign it. They signed it on page one hundred and ninety-nine of that two hundred and seven-page document. I knew once I'd seen that front page p- petition, the front page, that she wasn't a ringleader because her name's not there. And and to find it at um, page one hundred ninety-nine, I think confirms that even more. But that's terrific, Chelsea. You know because. In our history, the little bits that people know about Adelaide would position her as unusual and an exception for being politically aware colonial woman. That's how she's often been described to me and why some people discouraged me from writing a biography of her because they thought she wasn't representative of colonial society because she was too unusual in being educated and politically interested. Well, the fact that she's on page 199, I think, tells it a new story here. Yeah, she's she's one of a very strong community. One of 9,000... Exactly. 180... It's remarkable. Yeah. On that note, we might wrap up this conversation. Um, so that brings us to the close of Glam City for today. If you'd like to hear more from us, of course, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com, and you can also search for us on your favourite podcast app. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SER 107.3. And if you want to get in touch, please email us at glamcity at 2SER.com. My sincere, lovely thanks to Dr Kira Lindsay for taking on the role of guest today and for chatting so uh, beautifully about an amazing collection of documents. Thank you. Thank you, Chelsea. And again, as you said so nicely yourself, thanks to those archivists, to Edith, to Bonnie and to Rosemary for helping to light the path forward to revealing this fantastic document. I really hope it makes a difference to Australian history. 2SER stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and we acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging.